Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You can go down the investigative route um, and it will lead you down a certain path. But what for me, I think the conclusion I've come to in the last sort of eight months is that we breathing in the lab is very interesting, but actually in real life, there is no doubt that it has uh, positive effects. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupee, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. Today, I'm speaking to the incredible Dr. Rabia Lalani, a gastroenterologist and clinical research fellow at the Wingate Institute of Neurogastroenterology from Queen Mary's University. Dr. Rabia is in the process of creating a guide using slow deep breathing techniques with audiovisual biofeedback for relief of anxiety and digestive discomfort. And on this pod, we will be discussing the gut-brain axis, functional gut issues and what that means. That actually includes IBS as the most common one that people know about and how stress in particular impacts our gut health living with gut issues and the impact of lifestyle interventions such as breathing. You'll find the recipe video that I cooked for Dr. Rabia at the start of the show on my YouTube channel, The Doctor's Kitchen, so you can see how delicious and easy it was to make even whilst recording a podcast. You can find all of this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com. Subscribe to the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes and listen to the end of the pod for a summary of a discussion and how we can potentially improve our gut health using lifestyle techniques. On to the podcast. Dr. Rabia, welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, so, like I said before, I've misguidedly decided to cook you a hot brunch <laughs> on one of the hottest days uh, in London today. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> we will survive. <laughs> yeah. So you've got an allergy to nuts um, yeah. and seeds. So we haven't done any of that, which oh. I usually put in. Unfortunately, I usually put in like you know, oh, nuts and seeds for the okay. fibre and the quality fats. Kind of. Sorry but that's about good. that. No, 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 that's great. <laughs> We've got loads of good fats coming from the extra virgin olive oil. So I'm going to be making you um, a savoury oats dish so a, a lot of people like you know shudder at the thought of yeah. a savoury oats dish but <laughs> honestly it, it can be very delicious um, a lot of Sri Lankan food has uh, or South Indian food have you heard of boha it's, no. um, it's like a flat rice grain it kind of looks like oats but they're okay. quite hard to get in the UK um, but oats is a very good sort of um, uh, like a um, What's the word I'm Substitute for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives the same sort of flavour. So we're making savoury oats with some mushrooms, uh, sun-dried mm. tomatoes, tarragon, 
bit of spinach and bring it all together with a little bit of veg stock. Sound good? Perfect. Sounds good. so delicious. I'm <laughs> so excited. So to start off, we're just going to toast yeah. uh, these oats in a okay. dry pan before we get everything cooking. So it's just dry toasting? Dry toasting for now. Cool. And what dry toasting does is it just brings the flavour out of the, the oats themselves. Mm -hmm. It also reduces the cooking time. Um, because we're not gonna like um, we're not gonna like cook it like you would traditional porridge oats with loads of milk or water and then put the lid on. It's quick cooking in the extra virgin olive oil. Hopefully the flavours will marry all together. Yeah, and stuff. nice. So, yeah, sounds so good. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Rabia, mm. you uh, I'm gonna call you Rabia now. It's yes, too please, much. <laughs> please take so, off the formality. Yeah, yeah. your um, your research is what brought us together. Um, mm -hmm. We were introduced by, was it Dr. Uh, Professor Tony Young? Did he connect us yeah, on? Yeah, so, well, no, actually he, um, he was doing a evening entrepreneur session okay, yeah. uh, for NHS entrepreneurs, which you're a part of now, yes, right? Yes, yeah, and, yeah, one um, of the pit stops. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I went along just, um, you know, a friend of a friend, uh -huh. and um, he mentioned you as somebody to connect with um, and share ideas in this space. So um, I actually got your recipe book off a mutual friend of ours. Oh, did you? All right. And I literally emailed your email address, like Doctor's Kitchen, yeah, yeah. and um, got a response and just said, you know, can we go for coffee? And, and I was surprised to say you said yeah, and then yeah. we just sort of took it from there with your busy schedule. So yeah, yeah we kind of did it that way. So. Well, I mean, like when you when you emailed, I remember now, I was like absolutely fascinated by what you were talking about because I've mm. never heard of neurogastroenterology. Okay. Um, so actually for the listeners, yeah. what is neurogastroenterology? What is your sort of like your field? How did you even get there? Okay, so um, yeah, <laughs> it needs, it needs <laughs> a bit of explanation. Take your time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm a gastroenterologist, which I think sort of means that my beloved organ is the gut yes. yeah. <laughs> um, and the liver and the pancreas. And I have a hard time explaining that to friends because they don't understand why I'd want to spend my whole life looking up people's looking, buttons yeah. and yeah. why I couldn't choose a more sexy organ like the heart yeah. or something. But anyway, um, it's easier to explain now because, as you know, the kind of gut-brain axis has become so trendy Absolutely. these days. Yeah. Um, Everything's to do with gut health. It has. People are talking about their poo more than often now. It's completely boomed. Ever. And I'm really hopeful that the stigma is going down. Mm. Um, I think we've got a long way to go, but mm. I think... Uh, it's you know the wellness sector and everything has gone a long way to improve that yeah. um, so how I got into neurogastroenterology which is as it says on the tin it's neuro you know brain yeah. gastro gut so it's the all the study of the brain gut axis mm. um, which now in the literature has been redefined to brain gut microbiota axis mm -hmm. so that's the kind of new term okay I didn't know that yeah oh, okay. so it's now B, uh, GBM or whatever oh, wow. um, so I was sat in clinic, you know, as a young registrar, as you'll be familiar with, mm. um, and I just noticed that about a third of the patients coming into clinic didn't have a problem with the structure of their guts, yeah. right? So um, we would look up them, we look up the gut with mm -hmm. a telescope mm -hmm. and we couldn't see any problems with them, but they mm -hmm. had significant symptoms. Yeah. And I just felt that about, you know, a third of patients, I would just turn, turn away. I would say, well, there's nothing coming up on your test. They're completely normal. You know, the endoscope is normal and you need to go back to your GP and do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, but I knew for a fact, because these patients get re-referred, mm. that they really are not getting a satisfactory service yeah. back in the community. Mm. And it's such a shame um, 
but they were coming back and then I was spending that little bit longer to investigate what was going on and it all came back to this idea that there is this complex interaction mm. between our environment, our personality and our modern lifestyles with the gut. Mm. So I came across this as a specialty and I was so chuffed because yeah. it is a subspecialty, it's only practiced in two centres in the UK. Mm. So it's a the Wingate Institute of Neurogastroenterology attached to the Royal London in East London yep. and also UCL. Yep. And um, I work with Professor Kasim Aziz, yep. who is one of the leading neurogastroenterologists yep. in the UK, and he's my supervisor. So he I actually... I remember looking him up, actually, when you, you told did. me about okay. Wingate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. phenomenal work. Hey? I don't think people have heard much, much about him, yeah. but he's, um, yeah, he's gone a long way to improving the field. So. Mm. Um, I he actually um, I started going to his clinic. So as a reg, I would just go maybe once a month, get some study leave, turn yeah. up. See oh, so you go in your own time. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. I mean, I suppose it's the starting point yeah. to any interest. So yeah. I would just take leave, go there, sit in on his clinic, observe him, watch what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, you must have loved that back in the day, right? Because yeah. it wasn't a very sort of sexy field back then. No, right? I, I still don't it's think still <laughs> it's that. I mean, certainly within the medical field. Sure. Yeah. I think we're in the cusp. Yeah. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> that smells gorgeous. By oh, the way. great. Good. Just good. those tomatoes going in is like change yeah. to the center <laughs> of the room. That, that's why I use sun dried tomatoes quite a bit because it yeah. imparts so much flavor for just one ingredient. Um, and so, so, so just for the listeners, what I've done thus far is put the um, uh, oats in, toasted those, add a little bit of extra virgin olive oil, um, gone in with the finely chopped shiitake mushrooms and some of the sun-dried baby tomatoes, which have uh, a natural sort of oregano flavour to them as well. Um, chopped up some tarragon that I'm going to throw in a bit later. We're just going to let this cook for a minute or so and then add some vegetable stock to essentially cook the uh, mushrooms a bit more on the oats and then we'll bring everything else together. So. So you're going to so write all this start? down for me, right? Because oh, yeah, if yeah, I want to replicate yeah. it. It will be on the podcast notes <laughs> on thedoctorskitchen.com, so okay. everyone will see this recipe and uh, your awesome. reaction to it as well. <laughs> so, oh, you yeah. so you're at the Wingate um, Institute, so, you're yeah. sort of volunteer, volunteering, going, hanging out with Professor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and all the while I'm sort of doing my day job, seeing these patients, feeling reasonably dissatisfied, yeah. and then popping into his clinic, doing some observation. Um, and then I decided, okay, what I need to be doing with my career is, is setting up a service in mm. the future. Something mm. that sits in the sweet spot between what mainstream medicine is doing yeah. and what is happening in the kind of complementary lifestyle sector. Yeah, yeah. And there is a sweet spot and I think it's unfilled. So I was wondering how I was going to go about that. And I actually applied for a management job in the NHS. Oh, right, okay. Um, and I had, I got the job and I was waiting to start. So uh -huh. this is like two weeks before start date. Yeah. Um, and I receive a call from Professor Aziz and he says, a position has opened up at the Wingate, you know, to be um, a researcher, actually running a trial, you know, will you come and, and work with me? And it's just something I couldn't turn down. So um, come September 2018, I started work there as a, as a researcher mm -hmm. um, and here I am. Absolutely, so, that's great. Of yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of ideas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that sort of convoluted path, and you went straight into gastroenterology, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So studied at 
Bristol, mm -hmm. um, and then yeah, straight straight through. Straight through, yeah. Gasser, yeah. And so yeah. you never thought that you'd be going down the Newcastle route and looking at sort of all this sort of work. How how what was your introduction to wellness? Was it the dissatisfaction that you were having with patients that you sent back to the community? They didn't get good uh, sort of treatment, and they would always come back. Was that sort of your entry into wellness, or did you have sort of any personal interest in into lifestyle medicine or? Yeah, so. I think in order to see that as a, as a problem, you have to have a certain pair of glasses on, yeah. right? Like to yeah. see that patients are reasonably dissatisfied. Mm. Um, so those glasses came probably as my training as a yoga teacher, oh, I would say. Okay. Oh, so okay. I was doing yoga for many years in Bristol and then um, qualified a couple of years ago as a Ashtanga Vinyasa teacher. Fantastic. So I think I've always had that interest, you know, in yeah. how can we bring a more holistic viewpoint to gastro uh -huh. care. Yeah. Um, so I think those are the glasses I was wearing from yeah. like day one and then these patients started coming in and I just thought there has to be something that we can do Absolutely. and I don't know what that is yet so yeah. watch this space yeah. um, but I'm very keen to share you know my ideas around it because oh. it's not just for me it's for it's for all um, clinicians to kind of jump on that trend I think Absolutely, going yeah. that way. So I remember yeah. actually one of the first questions you asked me was like how are you managing the sort of complex interplay between lifestyle medicine, traditional medicine, and that kind of quirky stuff that's on the cusp of, you know, <laughs> evidence base and, you know, yeah. whether we should be even talking about that, because that's kind of what shrouds a lot of, um, a lot of issues that we have as lifestyle medicine practitioners, you know, right. people talking about food and medicine can be talking about food uh, as a cure-all and as a pill versus yeah. food as an adjunct to conventional therapy, which is what I, I believe in. Um, and, and there is a lot of evidence based in. So, you know, there is this uncomfortable line that we as practitioners have to have to test and, and we have to walk. Um, how, how has it been for you thus far? <laughs> yeah, challenging. Um, and that is definitely what one of the things that really attracted me to, um, you know, collaborating with you is is the is the way that you've done your recipe book with all the references and everything because yeah. as conventional doctors we you know we have to follow that evidence-based line for good reason yeah. and I think what I used to call the complementary and alternative sector yeah. I then started calling lifestyle medicine yeah. because what I realized is that certainly in our lifetime we're not going to be able to completely validate complementary health Absolutely. and therefore we are never going to be able to stand as doctors conventionally trained and mm. say that we can recommend X, Y and Z to our patients. Yeah. Not, that, not that it cannot complement it mm. <laughs> but that we can't necessarily always recommend it because it's completely bespoke and yeah. personalized Absolutely. for the individual. Yeah. And that's not how evidence-based medicine works. Yeah. We work on trends and we work on large cohorts of patients where yeah. we prove that, you know, a certain significance in results. So um, that's how I came to the lifestyle medicine idea because I can see how that is the go-between yeah. um, of complementary alternative health where patients often get lost. I mean, yeah. they go into that sector, they can spend so much money, yes. they don't know what they're buying, yeah. but they're desperate yeah. and I don't blame them. Absolutely. Um, so we need to shine some light on that for sure. And I yeah. think... Hopefully, you know, you and I are going to be part of that, and yeah. you've already you've already done it. So no, I no, think no. I think it's like shining light on that, and then talking about lifestyle medicine as the go-between. Absolutely, and you know what? I, I remember having these sort of um, thoughts when I was a medical student as well. One of my uh, early mentors was a gastroenterologist at Charing Cross. Fantastic gastrophysician, mm. amazing person, very very caring. But I remember being in um, a consultation with him, 
and we had a young woman, lawyer, um, who had functional gut issues for many years, been tried on a whole bunch of different medications. She ended up leaving the consultation with some domperidone, um, uh, but she'd had all the investigations that, you know, we're talking about scopes and uh, blood tests and x-rays and a whole bunch of other things, and no sort of uh, cause found for her, for her issues. Mm. And then she was just sent home, like with the domperidone prescription without and now looking back on it, like without any dietary advice, without any yeah. sort of real feeling that she'd been listened to, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't sort of the fault of, of the gastro physician at the time. It's just because we're not taught about these things at medical school. <laughs> and so yep. I, I'm <laughs> hoping that, you know, lifestyle medicine becomes a thing. And in fact, I just got an email from um, my old university, Imperial. They're, they're creating a new uh, compulsory module mm-hmm. called lifestyle medicine. Fantastic. Um, for year one and year two. So yeah. looking at the evidence base behind, you know, all these different holistic um, yes. quote yeah. unquote interventions um, that actually have uh, massive impact on people. Um, so hopefully, you know, Definitely. we're training a new generation of, of doctors. And Bristol's pretty forward uh, coming with this. I've lectured yeah. there a couple of times. Oh, right. They? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, ama- they're amazing. They're really <laughs> it good. It must have been that unconventional education. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. yeah. And Bristol itself is quite quirky. There's like, you know, cool. loads of yoga events and <laughs> yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's pretty so. trendy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. So we've just made uh, your, oh, so um, your savoury oats. Let me get mm-hmm. you uh, a teaspoon. A spoon here. You can try that. It's a little bit hot, so... And oh, feel free so to give good. me your honest opinion. Tell me what you think it needs. <laughs> okay. What, you know, whether tarragon was a bad idea, whether it needs sage or oregano, so something like that. So, <laughs> mm. yeah, please, please go ahead. Oh, that just is really good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the habit I'm of smelling. I'm in before, the habit yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My husband always laughs at me. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, mindfulness. With are you food. a bit of a foodie as well? I love food. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, massively. Good. We should chat about your favourite restaurants in London. <laughs> I always love getting recommendations from people who are like, okay. you know, really into food and stuff. There's so, so much. Are we not sport for choice? I mean, Ooh. especially on a day like this. I mean, Absolutely, London yeah. is at its best in this weather. Yeah, it's yeah, so totally. Good. Yeah, tons of rooftop bars I need to check it out. <laughs> mm hmm. That is so intriguing. It's unusual, hey? That is so intriguing. Yeah. The, the the textures work really well, yeah, yeah. really well, and this could I mean this could make a good like as you say it's brunch so breakfast yeah. lunch like do you ever accompany it with anything I or? do so usually because the uh, oats are quite soft to bring yeah. a little bit of like a crunchy texture I would serve it with some crushed hazelnuts that are toasted on top okay. just to give that little oh, balance yeah. there <laughs> um, but uh, you know you could do it if you didn't have a seed uh, intolerance then like mm. some seeds pumpkin seeds or sesame mm. seeds something like that. Um, and then scrambled eggs, I would probably put through it, or scrambled tofu if you're completely plant-based. Um, so yeah, that would work as a, like a proper brunch dish. Um, but it's, you've got to get over your sort of like uh, thought process behind porridge being a sweet dish, and right. like, you know, with yeah, cinnamon yeah. And, and nutmeg and all those sort of flavors. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so a little bit unusual, but... So good, I'm good. so I'm good. good. <laughs> and you know, in the time that we were, were talking, so yeah, also yeah, pretty, absolutely. pretty straightforward. Good. Very easy to make. Mm. So if you want to uh, listen Thank to you. the rest of the discussion that I'm having with Dr. Rabia, <laughs> tune into the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. You can find it on all podcast plays and iTunes uh, and on thedoctorskitchen.com. We'll see you there. How was your lunch? So good. Or <laughs> your brunch, so rather. So tasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really good, thank you. We had it with a little bit of peach salad and um, mm. some other spinach leaves and stuff, so yeah. it kind of, hopefully it was cooling. It was, it <laughs> yeah. definitely was. It was really good, perfect for this weather. Absolutely. So, 
let's talk about the brain-gut axis. This is something okay. that has centered a lot of your research. And I think it's one of those terms that's banded around quite a bit without yes. people really understanding what that means for them. So why don't we yeah. define exactly what we mean by the brain-gut axis? Yeah, you're totally right. It's become a term that's quite trendy. And yet, um, I don't think people have quite understood it to the extent that they can use it to change you know, little bits about the way that they relate to their guts. So um, put really simply, uh, it's a conversation. So there's this conversation going on between the brain and the gut, right? So, um, and the conversation is going on on multiple levels. So what's occurring, let's say on the gut level is that you've got the lining of the gut that is um, full of these cells and the cells are producing signals. So to use our analogy, the cells are kind of speaking. They are saying sentences, they're saying phrases. And these phrases are being communicated up to the brain. So on a really pragmatic level, we can understand that our gut is probably telling us when we're hungry or when we're full or when we need to go to the toilet. And those things are really quite simple messages communicated on you know, a hormonal level. Um, but what's interesting is the way that these are, these are sent up to the brain is via the powerhouse of a nerve, a really long nerve, the longest nerve of the autonomic nervous system, or I like to call it automatic nervous system okay, of the yeah, body. Yeah. You know, everything's occurring automatically. Yeah. Um, like breathing and homeostasis control. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and these signals are occurring like as fast as electricity along a telephone line, right? Um, but for a long time, we thought that the vagus nerve, um, like any cell in the body, only understood nerve signals because it's a nerve cell, it's taking nerve signals. Um, but turns out it's multilingual. So it's kind of like Google Translate, yeah. <laughs> you know, like... I'm loving these there analogies. Are, yeah, like, I mean, I mean, this is how I explain it to patients yeah, because yeah. we need to kind of get it in our heads before we can work with it and move forward. And Absolutely. hopefully, you know, we'll do that. So. Um, the cells are sending languages um, such as um, inflammation coming from immune cells or, for example, serotonin coming from our endocrine system, our hormone system. And a lot of people know that 80% of the serotonin is produced in the gut. Um, although I will add here that not many people know that melatonin is produced by the gut as well. And you'll obviously um, been recommended, you know, foods, particular yes. foods that are melatonin containing. So that relates to the fact that sleep and the gut are related and all sorts of things. But the languages that are being spoken are inflammation by our immune system, hormones by our endocrine system, um, and um, also all sorts of other languages that the vagus nerve then communicates up to the brain to say you know this is what's going on down below and then at the same time and rapidly in a matter of seconds the brain is then communicating back down to the gut in a kind of bi-directional conversation because yeah. we're talking about dialogue like yeah. you and i the two-way exchange of information mm -hmm. same is occurring mm -hmm. um, and the brain then tells the gut okay well now's not a great time to go to the yeah. toilet yeah. like because you because you're on a train yes. or whatever um, and I would really cite um, a book at this point called um, Gut by uh -huh. Julia Enders. Yes. Uh, have you fantastic. recommended that yeah, before? Yeah, it's actually on my website Is um, it? as one of the recommended books yeah. um, for gut health. It's fantastic. Perfect. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. And it's probably one of the ones that I've come across that people most um, gel with. Mm. Um, it's very uh, sort of pragmatic and it's very easy to understand. It's kind of simplified in, the, in the very much the same way you're using a lot of analogies and stuff. Yeah. I found patients really do find that useful. Yeah.
yeah and so i think she talks about you know in her in her second chapter um the relationship between the sphincters of the bottom yeah, do you yeah, remember yeah, that yeah, one yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's like honestly even for me i mean i'm a gastroenterologist i've trained in this for you know over 10 years and yet and yeah for me there was a lot of information there mm. so it talks about you know the two sphincters which are kind of like rubber bands at the, around muscle groups at the bottom of the back passage and how one talks to the other and they're in this constant conversation but the sensors in your back passage are constantly talking to the brain yeah. to say okay well now's the time where you need to go to the loo and is it appropriate yeah. and the sensors in the back passage are actually correlating with your past memory events you know to say well where am i am i with like a new partner that I've been with for like three weeks and therefore it's not really like yeah. acceptable to break wind yeah, or like yeah. you know what's what, where am I in yeah. this in this environment so it's it's a mirroring between your internal environment and your external environment and that process is happening all the time yeah. um, so I think what we've learned in the last like five ten years in this field and research is that the language is multilingual, that it's happening constantly, and the dialogue works both ways. And I think those principles will allow us to remind ourselves as, as patients, as people, that we really influence, um, you know, the way we think about our guts influences the way our gut moves exactly. and the way it senses. Yeah. Um, and when we don't think good things about it mm -hmm. and we don't form a good internal environment, then our guts develop problems like with, that, with its function. Exactly. Yeah. And this sort of frames the discussion we're going to have about functional uh, gut issues because mm -hmm. if we're having uh, so much of a bi-directional conversation with our gut and our brain, then there stands to reason there's a lot that we can do with how we think about our guts yeah. and what we do with regard to all these other sort of stress management techniques and um, uh, helping with functional gut issues. So why don't we dive into what we mean by a functional <laughs> gut issue? Because yeah. again, that's something that's banned around a lot. I have a functional gut problem. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's almost... Um, it's almost like uh, unintuitive to think of a functional gut problem being something that doesn't have uh, a structural issue with it or a biochemical imbalance, but it's still manifesting in issues with sensation, motility, function. Yeah. So what do we mean by functional gut yeah. disorder? Well, exactly that. So um, I have mentioned earlier that as a gastroenterologist, I put telescopes into people, right? So we call them endoscopes and we pop the telescope in and for me, it's useful to think about the gut as one long tube going straight from the, from the mouth down to the bottom. And when we put a telescope into this tube, what we're seeing is just the inner lining. So we're seeing a layer of cells on the inner lining, a very important layer of cells um, containing lots of bacteria and viruses and fungi and all the rest of it. But nonetheless, a layer of cells. And we can use conventional scans like CT, MRI, to look at the outside of the gut. So we can look inside and outside. And we can say, OK, um, if there is a break in the lining, um, we can call that an ulcer. Mm -hmm. If there is redness, we call it inflammation. And what we see with the naked eye, we treat. We've got medications, pills, so forth for that. Mm -hmm. But there are so many more layers to this tube. So there are, if we peel back with our mind's eye one layer, you get a layer of connective tissue and within that nerve endings and within that immune cells. And you know, the gut is called your second brain because it's got this nervous system made up of 100 million neurons that is functioning in, in and of its own, like another a, a being. And, um, and so as we peel back the layers, all of these other processes are going on. And 
that stands to reason that some of those can also go wrong. And just because we haven't caught up with our testing investigations on how we examine the movement, the secretion and the sensitivity, doesn't mean it's not all going on. And so when those things malfunction, um, the function of the gut goes down. So we're talking, as you said, about the function of the gut. And what do I mean by that? Well, its ability to contract and relax, so-called peristalsis, to move food along, and also its ability to absorb nutrients. So these are the functions of the gut as opposed to the structure, which is the long tube that can get red or scarred or whatever. And it's that um, arena um, that's going wrong for us because of our environment, our personality, our modern lifestyles, things have, uh, have got um, a lot of propensity to go wrong. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that's what, what do you think is the reason behind why so much is going wrong with our guts at the moment? Because I'm mm-hmm. inundated with tons of people mm-hmm. uh, in clinic and on social media asking about things to do with IBS or gut dysmotility or bloating or cramping and, and, no, and everyone looking for a dietary sort of intervention for this. Obviously yeah. my bias is food, the doctor's kitchen. Yeah. But this is why I'm fascinated about the wider arena of lifestyle medicine because there's so much that can actually impact your gut. So why do you think we're seeing a lot more of these issues at the moment? It's a really good question. Um, I would say that um, that the answer is probably going to be threefold. So firstly, I think it comes down to modern lifestyle. Um, And within modern lifestyle, like you said, there are various components, one of which is diet. But there is I mean, diet is undoubtedly one of the key players in this field, for sure. But for some reason, we've developed a bit of a preoccupation with identifying our food intolerances. And the reason why I think that speaks with what you, what the Doctor's Kitchen do, is because effectively some of the key messages coming out of your work is like, eat fresh, eat colourful. And all of those basic principles really do apply but what's going on with patients is quite different instead of defaulting to those basic um, rules of life um, we're looking at excluding certain food groups and we're ending up with irregular eating habits and a fear avoidance you know we go to a restaurant and we we just don't know if what we're going to eat is going to make us feel good or bad Um, and therefore we end up with quite limited I, I mean I see our patients end up with really limited diets yeah and it's almost like you have that anxiety before you even start eating because you're yeah. worried about if this food is going to lead to uh, issues in your gut and you might even have like a hypersensitive uh, hypersensitivity to a normal reaction that's happening in your gut where you have some fiber for example and it causes a little bit of bloating but then you have that sort of anxiety compounding the effect of that Yes, absolutely. And that kind of goes back to what you and I were chatting about at the beginning, which is the idea that the way that we think influences our nerve cells and sensitivity, and therefore a piece of food that, not, that wouldn't normally inflame or aggravate you mentally is going to. Yeah. So um, they always say, you know, you should eat in a really calm environment yeah. and, not, and avoid stress and yeah. you know, stressful conversations around the dinner table yeah. because the very act of having a stressful conversation puts your adrenaline up yeah. and adrenaline acts on the gut. It acts to activate the sympathetic nervous system, the fight flight response, and you're ending up in a situation where you're telling your gut, actually, I've got a tiger in front of me yeah. and I'm in a situation 
to my primitive brain at least, which says I shouldn't really be eating right now. Yeah. And therefore the gut's motility actually slows down and you become more sensitive. And yeah. so it's a no wonder that if you're having a really heightened conversation during dinner, yeah. that your gut starts to form patterns and the patterns it forms then get replicated when you're not in a stressful situation, you know, and you're kind of- This is just reminding me of some of the <laughs> stuff that my mum taught me when I was a kid. Right. Like, you know, if you're running around, you shouldn't be eating. If you're like, you know, shouting or you're, you're not in a good environment at this point in time, you yeah. shouldn't be eating. All these sorts of old wise tales that have yeah. stood the test of time. There is actually Completely. a lot of science behind it. She's going to be telling me like, no, I told you so <laughs> yeah, she's going to be like, it took you this long yeah, exactly. to figure out what I told you yeah, in the first yeah. place. So, so yeah. we jumped, jumped ahead a little bit as we are going to, we we're going to be going all over the place. Yes. Uh, <laughs> as is the function of the gut. Um, so functional gut disorders, what yeah. kind of functional gut disorders are we talking about here? IBS. Is yes. The so IBS or irritable bowel syndrome is probably the most common. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got problems, as we go back to that analogy of this tube going from the mouth all the way down to the bottom, you've got problems with reflux, mm -hmm. indigestion, heartburn. Mm -hmm. um, and what we would do is we put the word functional in front of that, yeah. <laughs> which basically yeah. means that your telescope is normal and yeah. you know maybe even some other tests to examine movement and motility are normal. Um, so you've got functional reflux indigestion, you've got functional dyspepsia, yeah. which is the medical term to describe um, discomfort in the upper abdomen, so above the belly button, um, and a sensation of feeling full too early or um, losing your appetite um, and bloating and so forth. And then if you move further down, you've got um, functional abdominal pain, which is just pain but without the change in bowel habit, and then you get towards a kind of irritable bowel, which yeah. is probably the most common. So altered bowel habits, either constipation, diarrhea, or mixed. Yeah, and have you noticed, just on a personal level, over the last few years that you've been training in gastroenterology that the acceptance of this being not purely psychological is sort of filtered down into the conventional thinking about um, how we approach functional disorders because when I was at medical uh, school uh, um, initially you know we would sort of write off these people as this, this is all in your head mm -hmm. or this is like a psychological issue go back to your GP maybe start them on antidepressants, maybe see a psychiatrist. Do you think that's kind of changing now in the sort of the conventional mindset that this isn't just all in our head? Yes, I think so. I think it comes down to, you know, everyone I would say nowadays, and this is a credit to our profession, is having the conversation. So we are saying to patients now, most people, you know, what, how is your mood affected? What component is affected by your mood? And we know that you know, having really bad symptoms leads to bad quality of life yeah. and therefore can cause mood symptoms, but also mood symptoms like anxiety and depression can then also cause gut issues. Yeah. And this is the uh, nature of the beast, the cyclical relationship. Um, so doctors are less dismissive of that, but sometimes patients um, find themselves not able to acknowledge on a conscious level that they have any anxiety or low mood. And that's okay because not all of us do. But given what we know about the way the gut and brain are working, I think even if we can't acknowledge that we feel low, because yeah. maybe we don't, maybe we've got a very positive outlook, I think it's worth us considering that there are certain interventions that occur on a mind level, on a top-down approach, mm -hmm. that could actually benefit your gut. Yeah. Um, so I would really encourage people to not, um, I guess, uh, depart from the stigma of thinking that they have to feel low in mood in order to have some psychology that will help their gut. Actually, yeah. psychology for the gut is needed anyway yeah, because of what we know about yeah. it. And you know what? I find that a difficult conversation to have with patients sometimes because 
you don't want to insinuate that this is all in the head or that they do have a psychological issue that already has a lot of stigma around it. You do want to ask them quite sensitively, to, uh, sensitively about what are your current stresses throughout, throughout the day? Is it, you know, are you stressed at work? Does it have to be, you know, something that's very obvious or can it be, you know, the phone going off or constant uh, screens that we're attached to these days or, you know, the email sort of phenomena that has affected all of us and that we're expected to reply to them almost instantaneously. You know, are those the stresses that might be triggering gut disorders? Yes, absolutely. Um, and before we go on to like talk more about the stress side of things, I just want to go back to your question earlier where you said, you know, why are we having so many functional issues? And I, I talked a little bit about um, kind of environment, so the choices we're making surrounding food and so forth. But what's really interesting is that um, you know, the microbiome, which is this bacteria colony of the gut, right? Like it outnumbers our genes by 150 to one. There's just so, you know, many organisms there. Um, this was formed um, as well as your brain gut uh, interactions in the first three years of life. Mm -hmm. So between the ages of like birth and during birth and year three, a lot of these patterns were formed. Now, um, there's lots of factors that are associated with this, such as the mode of delivery. Yes. So whether you had a cesarean, born by cesarean section or vaginal delivery and the bacteria associated with that. Also, whether you were best breastfed or bottle fed. But one of the factors that, came, that really perked perk my interest is maternal stress. Ah, okay. So maternal stress has a huge impact on their baby's uh, gut bacteria. Right. And I think as mothers, you think about what you put into your body during pregnancy, right? Absolutely. And you think about the supplements, you think about folic acid. Mm. But to what extent are we really protecting ourselves against stress? Yeah. Um, and the reason this is empowering is because on the one hand, you might think, oh, well, if my interactions and the patterns were formed at the age of three, then I clearly have no control over it. I don't think that's the case. I think actually we can use this knowledge to feel empowered yeah. um, because what it tells us is firstly that, you know, certainly we have no control over the way we're born. Mm. We can plan for yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. But there's no way that, the, I mean, the child certainly yeah. doesn't yeah. have yeah. any control, yeah. but mum doesn't have any either. She can plan yeah. for it, but it's out of her hands. Yeah. So she can't choose to have a baby in a certain way and she can't choose to breastfeed necessarily. She can try, but all of these things are not entirely within her yeah. control. But what is within her control is her ability to say, okay, I am pregnant and I have like a responsibility, you know, to think about the ways I relate to my body yeah. now. Yeah. So I think that's empowering. And I also think it's empowering because I have a lot of patients who are amazing. They have toned their diet to an absolute key. Yeah. They do physical exercise, they sleep well, and they've got all the lifestyle factors sorted. Yeah. And yet they come to me and they say, doc, I'm, I'm still feeling like I've still got a functional gut issue. Right. What's going on? Yeah. And I think one thing that is empowering is to say, to be honest, like this is your Achilles heel, like your digestive system is your body's way of kind of red flagging to say, you know, something's not right. And it's, if you're always going to have a bit of a predisposition there, um, a degree of acceptance goes a long way yeah. men mental, mentally, yeah. I think, to being able to progress and move forward to yeah. make changes. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I love think, the positive spin yeah. you put on that because I think <laughs> a lot of people will look at that stress factor and be like, oh, I have no control of that because of the environmental stimuli and you know, the fact that I have to go to work and I have financial pressure and all the rest of it. But the way you're talking about it is if, it's almost like this is in, within your locus of control. This is something that you have a lot of impact on.
Absolutely. You know, I I love the definition of stress that I got from my psychology A-level book. Like, okay. can you believe after all our medical training, like, you know when stuff just stands out yeah, in your head out, from, yeah. like, when you were younger? Yeah. So the definition of stress from, and you, you may already, like, ascribe to this, from my psychology A-level was that stress occurs when there's a mismatch between the perceived demands of a situation and your perceived ability to cope with it. So a mismatch between the perceived yeah. keyword demands yeah. of a situation and your perceived ability to cope. Um, and I That's so useful. Yeah, That's I so, mean because perceived is the sort of the, the key word there, isn't it? Because a lot of people can seem to have a lot of stressful uh, things they have to deal with, financial pressures, work, etc they still cope with it because they have great coping mechanisms, whether that be, you know, uh, a good organized file or whether, it, whether they practice meditation or whether they have a supportive family. Yeah. So, but then people who may have seemingly less stressful lives may perceive that to be more stressful for them. So it's, again, it comes back to this personalized sort of individual approach. Absolutely, yeah. And I kind of, I mean, for me, this is just like, um, you know, hopefully helpful. Um, I imagine it like two scales, right? Like golden scales, or they could be yeah. any colour. <laughs> Just try and make it as re regal as possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> one side of the scale is like your the perceived demands, and on the other side is your perceived ability to cope. And stress is the mismatch. So if you're in a stressful situation, ask yourself, what are the perceived demands, and what is my perceived ability to cope? And can I reduce the perceived demand? Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe not. I mean, like, if you're in A&E, yeah. probably not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, if you're working yeah. a shift, I yeah. mean, the demand is high. Yeah, yeah. But can I increase the perceived ability to cope? Yeah. Because, and what's interesting is this isn't just a psychological uh, rhetoric. Mm -hmm. It's actually appearing in our studies. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the relationship between stress and digestion, the correlation is clear. No one can deny that. Even with patients who have a robust, strong constitution, uh, you know, if you're preparing for a presentation, you get butterflies, yeah. you might need to rush to the loo and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the association, no one's going to be able to disprove it. But what we're not sure about in research, what's coming out, is we're not clear whether it is a, um, a real difference in the body's um, ability to manage stress mm -hmm. or whether it's the perception of stress gotcha. that's the issue. Yeah. So there was this study uh, I read recently, so it's uh, St. Mark's Hospital in North London, 2004. Mm -hmm. And they Just looked for the at listeners. St. Mark's is one of the, like the yeah. world leading sort of centres for gastroenterology, right? It is. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> um, particularly in nutrition. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, St. Mark's did this study where they took um, IBS sufferers, so irritable bowel, and healthy controls, mm -hmm. and they measured um, rectal blood flow. So the rectum is your back passage; it's the tail end. And they looked at blood flow as a surrogate marker of how the nervous system is functioning in that area. Um, there's obviously lots more nuances to the study, but just the basic principle I got from it was that they, they essentially had an intervention, which was psychological and physical stress, so we induce stress, and then we see what's the blood flow looking like, and also a lot of other parameters, how does your heart rate change, do you sweat more, so on and so forth. And what they found was between the two groups, the stress response was reasonably similar, but patients with IBS, so a functional gut issue, took longer to return to their baseline level than did healthy controls. Right. So there was this lag time in the response. So we took longer to return. And 
the key thing that um, interests me so much, <laughs> you can see how like passionate yeah, yeah, I am about yeah, this, yeah. because you know it's something that we did, they did in the lab, and you say, okay, so what? So we took a little bit longer to, for our physiology to return to baseline. But actually that transcribes to a really important concept that I think is really empowering for people. And that is the concept of resilience. So resilience has been talked a bit about in the literature as well. Um, and it's kind of defined as our ability to bounce back. So our ability to adjust and to cope with stresses or stressful triggers in our life. And so it turns out that our ability to cope with things and our ability to be resilient has a huge effect on our propensity to develop functional gut issues like IBS wow. and sustain them. Yeah, yeah. I can t uh, just going back to one of the um, points that you made about the perception of stress mm. versus your coping mechanisms. One of the anecdotes I found from one of my uh, colleagues in A&E, he's a consultant in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, he presented at the Flourishing in, 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 in Adversity Conference, which is at the uh, RCHEM, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, they do it once a year. And he's a really big fan of this concept of mindful snacking. So throughout the day, I mean, he's dealing with trauma cases, a whole bunch of like, you know, different external stimuli that are super stressful. Um, and every time he goes to wash his hands, he reminds himself of that being a mindful moment. So when I wash my hands, I'm gonna breathe in, gonna breathe out, and that's gonna be sort of my mindful snack. Or when I'm doing a cannula, yeah. uh, I'm gonna take everything out, I'm gonna put everything on the on the, um, on the top of a trolley, I'm gonna put my cannula here, I'm gonna get my saline ready, I'm gonna do that, and I'm gonna have a mindful moment, I'm gonna breathe in, breathe out. Uh, or when I'm doing suturing, it's like I'm having a mindful moment, I'm just concentrating on the suturing. And, you know, those, those sorts of little points, at pointers in your day where you can actually improve your resilience to what's seemingly a very, very stressful external environment and do you think that that he would say that improves his resilience absolutely yeah. yeah i mean he's a he's a mindfulness teacher now and he okay. sort of talks about this with a lot of any &E trainees who obviously got a lot of stressful lifestyles and probably have a lot of functional gut disorders themselves oh, i don't think my that, goodness. i don't know if there's been any studies looking at that yes but yes. i think have they, or, <laughs> yeah oh, <brilliant>. I mean, <laughs> yeah i mean look at what we do to ourselves yeah. in this process in this system i mean you know, the system is fantastic, but I think we're not always the best at taking care of ourselves, are we? Um, the That's studies... Thing I've, uh, the, one of the first chapters I wrote about in our book is that we're not pillars of health that people should look up to. We actually need to practice self-care yeah. before we start looking after other people. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with loads of other things, but... You're yeah. completely right. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> I mean, um, the studies have been done in shift work wow. as well a lot. You know, it's the oh, disruption yes, yeah. of shift work that I think, um, particularly in somewhere like A&E, that yeah. disrupts digestive health. Um, so, yeah, a lot of studies yeah, on yeah, that, I yeah. think, especially in, in nurses. So yeah. we, we don't necessarily have the system set up right for us yet. Um, but then again, I guess we're all working towards the same course. So hopefully, hopefully yeah. there will be a sea change. Yeah, yeah, I reckon yeah. so, yeah. And going back to your point about um, pre-pregnancy nutrition and mm. uh, <laughs> nutrition, because I just did a paper on it for my nutritional medicine masters. And Amazing. we talked about things like uh, folate, definitely, folic yeah. acid, iodine, very important. Not a lot of people are thinking about that from a sort of a neurodevelopmental point of view. Mm -hmm. We're actually quite low in terms of global sort of iodine measures. Right. Um, uh, and people don't really think about where you get iodine from. You actually get it from like fish and dairy products and, and a whole bunch of other sources. Um, but I don't really talk about uh, stress with my mm -hmm. patients who are looking to get pregnant as well and that is a, a very stressful sort of period in people's oh, life yeah. because they expect almost today with you know this instant gratification sort of um, uh, 
this sort of uh, uh, acceptance that we should be instantly getting pregnant or things should happen to us immediately. Yes. That can compound a lot of stress as well that people have, particularly when they're trying to get pregnant. And yeah. as women, uh, you know, try and conceive later on in life, that can actually also put a lot of pressure on them as well. And that, that's something I haven't really talk too much about with with regard to you know the process of getting pregnant and also the impact on, on baby later on yeah and I, I mean i don't blame you because actually you know like <laughs> the idea about stress stress has taken a back seat like mm. it's the reason why i always say you know people ask me like why is gluten-free such a like is it a trend yeah. is, are people just going gluten-free because um it's trendy and I say, well, no, that's definitely not the whole picture, but the prevalence of celiac disease hasn't increased. It's still 1%. And therefore, the fact that like Pizza Express are doing, you know, uh, gluten-free pizzas must mean that a large population are having an effect. And yeah. you will know, be able to describe much better than me about the effects of gluten as a yeah. protein and so forth. But the point that I was trying to make in relation to what you're saying is that food is easy to manipulate yeah. right yeah. it's easy to go i'm not well it's not easy it's easier to go <laughs> i'm gonna have especially in today i mean we have yeah. so many options yeah. so it's easier to go i'm gonna have a gluten-free roll instead of a normal white roll or whatever um or i'm gonna put this on my plate i'm not gonna put that on and maybe we don't sustain the changes for very long and it comes down to the idea of like how do we form a habit mm. Um, which is probably a whole nother yeah, yeah. podcast in and of itself. Yeah. But stress is harder to change um, and we don't necessarily think that we can do it. We don't feel empowered to because there's so much stress going on. I mean, how does one even live in the modern world without experiencing stress? Yeah, and stress is quite like a, a big broad term as well. It's very umbrella-like. It can, you know, incorporate a whole bunch of different things. That sort of annoyance that you have when you look at... Uh, uh, something that uh, president of American state uh, Amer uh, the president of America said for example or yeah. you know some sort of issue that you've had with a colleague at work you know it, stress can manifest in so many different ways that it's actually quite hard to pinpoint what we mean when we say the word stress completely and i think that's why that definition for me really helps me in yeah. my daily life um, because um, I'm definitely going to use that <laughs> well yeah i mean i was just it came came a long time ago but i think the idea is that anything could be a form of stress, right? Low grade, high grade, um, you know, missing the bus can be a form of stress. So yeah. how do we take care of it, protect ourselves without becoming overwhelmed? Because there's no way of living a stress-free life. Like there's no, because we face demands every day when we wake up in the morning, but it's how do we process it? How do we perceive it? And things like mindfulness, meditation, yoga, breathing, it all, it all, it's about routine, like having those things in your daily life so that you build up this protective piggy bank yeah. that you can reach into when you're really down yeah. and retrieve. I can so, like, as you're <laughs> saying all these analogies, I can so <laughs> picture this in the clinic environment, like, you know, how you're explaining this to patients. So ju just to summarize, so we, we've talked about the brain gut axis. We've talked about how that relates to functional gut issues. We've talked about the concept of stress and, and what that means. And I love that definition. And I'm definitely going to be using that. Um, how do we deal with stress now? Like what, what are the kind of stress relieving techniques, the mind-body techniques, the mind-body interventions? It's something I, I talk about quite a bit in the, yeah. the latest book um, in the Lifestyle 360 section where uh, meditation is, is one of my, my favorite forms. But there's loads of different mm. ways. So how do, you, how do you get this across in, in clinic and, and what kind of uh, practices that you t do you talk about with patients? 
Yeah, so I think it really depends how receptive people are. Yeah. So it goes back to, you know, what we were saying earlier about are people, it's a spectrum, right? So firstly, you have to put yourself somewhere along a spectrum of, okay, do I have real anxiety and mood issues? If you're at that end of the spectrum, and I'm talking sort of high end, where you say, okay, my daily I feel low or I feel anxious, um, then that is something we need to address in, in the open. Yeah. So we need to talk about it in a way that it is its own entity thing, it's mm -hmm. affecting the gut, but really I can trace that back to X, Y, and Z in the past, tr certain traumatic events, uh, maybe something in childhood and so forth. So for me, that's its own entity. So recognizing that as a clinician opens the door for me to referring to psychologists, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and also certain antidepressants, which as we know, um, you know, work on the gut. So we use in our practice certain antidepressants like amitriptyline at very low doses and patients are always surprised to be put on them for gut pain, yeah, but yeah. actually they are working synergistically, um, you know, at, at that level. So that's, that's one end of the spectrum. And then as you go sort of middle end of the spectrum, one of the things that I advocate, although it's not widely accessible, and hopefully I'd help one day to improve that, is gut-directed hypnotherapy. So there's a certain uh, stigma attached to the idea of hypnotherapy. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, as soon as you mention like, the word, like, what do you mean, Paul McKenna? Right, exactly. <laughs> like, you're going to be put into some trance with yeah. a pendulum on a stage yeah, somewhere, yeah. and it's definitely not that. Yeah. It's effectively... Um, it was developed by Professor Peter Warwell, um, who's currently based in Manchester, and he um, has developed this guided relaxation techniques that use metaphor related to the gut in order to allow the brain to reach a lower state of um, anxious functioning and therefore tap into some of the, the autonomic nervous system. So it goes back to not the fight-flight side of things, but the rest digest yeah. side of things yeah. where you, we are putting our nervous system into a relaxed state. Yeah. And somehow this is what seems to help the gut. Yeah. So putting the, your nervous system, um, really tailoring down the frequency, putting it into a state where it can truly relax and truly rest mm. seems to be the way that we are able to um, access healing. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so the, the, we didn't talk about that actually, so the difference between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic mm -hmm. system and how that's potentiated by different activities that we can do. So just, just broadly, what do we mean by those sort of different mechanisms, those, those yeah. sort of pathways? Yeah, okay. So um, we're talking about um, here the autonomic nervous system. So put really simply, it's automatic. Yeah. Processes are occurring in the body heart beating, um, breathing, which is under both conscious and unconscious control, um, and lots of other processes. And this is all happening automatically. Which I um, believe is like purely by design, the fact that we can actually voluntarily and involuntarily have breath control. I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very right. powerful tool. I can't wait to talk to you. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Like it's, it's, it's it, you know, the breath is our, one of our ways to tap into that. And I say that like, you know, it's no evolutionary accident that the diaphragm is placed halfway between the gut and the brain yeah, yeah. Um, and we can manipulate that and the vagus nerve runs right through it. So, yeah. um, but to kind of uncover some of the jargon behind the automatic autonomic nervous system. So you've got um, the sympathetic 
Um, and I also uh, make this easier to understand, like that type of the nervous system is symp has sympathy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> For, um, it's my way of remembering yeah, yeah. it, it's so <laughs> lame. Um, but it's like the sympathetic nervous system has sympathy for the fact that there are uh, threats uh -huh. to our survival. Right. And our primitive brain, our limbic system, is kind of almost working against us in these modern times because there are no tigers and lions running around, but instead tiny little stresses are appearing like threats. So what happens is, is the sympathetic nervous system raises adrenaline and over a long period of time cortisol, which is a different hormone related to stress. And we go into this kind of fight flight mode. So heart rate increases, we start to sweat, blood pressure goes up and so on. Uh, pupils dilate and we are ready, we are ready to go. And then the other side of that, um, the flip side, again, going back to like golden scales, I suppose, is yeah. the parasympathetic. So it runs in opposition and what it does is it's, it um, allows digestion and rest to occur. So that is the side of us that enables us to digest. And it's like, you know, after we eat a big meal, we feel a bit lethargic. Yeah. It's because our parasympathetic system is on the go. Mm -hmm. So our heart rate is lowered. And we can actually have the power to flip the switch, mm -hmm. right? So we can take our foot off the pedal of the sympathetic. We can put it onto the parasympathetic, apply the brakes, and therefore allow the nervous system to seesaw between these two extremes mm -hmm. to the benefit of our biology. So that's kind of how I would put it yeah, in a nutshell. Yeah, exactly. yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. And so let's talk about how we can actually dial up the parasympathetic system. So yeah. we, we mentioned it briefly. I yeah. think we're dying to talk about breathwork <laughs> yeah, uh, as yeah. one of those stress relieving mechanisms, of which there are plenty of others. But I think breathing is particularly uh, interesting from the evolutionary perspective, our design perspective. Um, What's been your experience of breathwork thus far? Mm -hmm. And what do we mean by breathing? As yeah. Well? <laughs> Apart from like you know, the, the definition of it being sure. uh, a mechanical ventilation of the gas exchange service or something like that. <laughs> I love but, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember that from A-level biology. No yeah, way. Exactly. About, yeah, yeah. Mechanical ventilation of the gas exchange service. Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah. yeah, look at that. Can <laughs> so you believe lovely. how many? I mean, if we can do that right now in this moment, like trigger memories from our A level, like, the body is doing that all the time. Like, yeah, there are these memories and these imprints and these patterns that are that happened back then during totally. our A levels that yeah. are still playing out now, like yeah. a like a video tape on repeat. Yeah, yeah. And, and I find those patterns of recognition can sort of manifest themselves when you're in certain environments. So, like when I go to a, a large park, I automatically have amazing memories of being taken to parks when I was a kid and playing with my dad, for example. And that is a very stress relieving activity for me. But for someone else, that might not be. That might be completely different. It might be, you know, triggering feelings of loneliness or being rejected by friends because they didn't play with them when they were four years old. You know, there's so many right. different ways in which people can manifest stress or uh, relaxation in, in many ways. So Yeah, and we talked about, you know, like how how do we, you know, because stress is, is going to be there, it's inevitable, but we could be, the first step is education and awareness, right, which is what we're doing, like bringing the attention to the fact that there are these certain memory patterns and these footprints that exist in our life. And if we recognize the ones that are um, having negative effects on our body, we can change them, yeah, probably, absolutely. hopefully. So yeah. maybe the breath is one way yeah. <laughs> to do that, maybe. Yeah. Um, I think the challenge I've had as a researcher coming into this field is, you know, I mentioned earlier, I may have mentioned that I'm a yoga teacher. Yeah. So for me, it was completely obvious that the breath is going to be the gateway to healing and relief. Yeah. 
But then I got into research and I start to study this and I think, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to prove that yeah. which breathing technique and how long do, what's the inhale to exhale ratio and is dysfunctional breathing the issue or is the asynchrony um, between diaphragm and chest breathing the problem? And so there's this whole endeavor. The way you think about it from a research <laughs> mindset, you know, how do we test this, that, you know, this yeah. wasn't sham breathing versus actual, you know, something that's actually going on, but yeah. Yeah, because it's surely the same is the case in diet. So yeah. it's like, you know, inherently, you talked about your mum earlier, she might have said, okay, turmeric is good for, yeah. I don't know, anti-inflammatory effect, mm. for example. Okay, yeah, sure, that jumps on the trend yeah. and turmeric lattes are everywhere. But then as a clinician, what do you do with that? How exactly. do you how do you justify yeah. writing that sentence, you know? Absolutely, yeah, because there's so many different things that can impact just that one addition to your diet, you know? Yeah. Is that turmeric in combination with a diet that is high in uh, fiber or you know is it uh, in a particular form of turmeric that's more bioavailable are we talking about fresh turmeric versus powdered is there a difference between the powdered one that's been sat on the shelf for two years versus the one that's just been made powdered by sun drying you know, <laughs> is there, there's so many different things, and that's why this is just me going on a complete please, tangent here please. but <laughs> nutritional science is probably one of the most frustrating fields to be a part of because I find there's a lot of dogma and a lot of reliance on inaccurate study or studies that are just fundamentally flawed from the get-go because there's so many variables that are confounding um, and so they, they, they allow a multiple different ways in which to interpret the data. Um, but really what we need to be focusing on, what are the principles and, and, and mm -hmm. what are the things that we can take away from, from the studies that actually are translatable to clinical practice. And this, again, Again, I digress, but I, I find the most dogmatic people in nutrition are those that don't see patients because, <laughs> you know, yeah. they'll be like, you know, low carb is the way or ketogenic is the way or we need to do this particular format of macronutrients. People don't eat macronutrients. People don't eat saturated fat in isolation. <laughs> people eat food. And that's why, you know, when I was doing the research for both books and all the other stuff that I do online, I just found principles as I do in clinic is much better yes. you know look at this plate what does it look like it's mostly veg it's lots of different colors yeah. it's good quality sources of fat that you find from extra virgin olive oil and seeds and nuts and stuff and fiber and i find that almost the way i say it over and over again i feel like people might be getting bored of it but apparently not <laughs> <laughs> i'm certainly not yeah, i can yeah, listen to you right. forever <laughs> yeah yeah no, it's, um, uh, it's you fun. know what though this is exactly the mirror of what happens you know on on the other things because you know d diet is one aspect of lifestyle medicine it's one of the pillars as is other like physical activity and sleep and stress reduction so when it comes to things like breathing if we try and take ourselves too seriously yeah. and we do it in the lab and we try and nitpick and figure out um you know it, in one way it opens our mind to the various effects of it because what we don't want is to recommend a particular breathing technique that is limiting yes. so for example one of the things that i've learned is that if you continue Continue to breathe. Okay, so what I should say is that um, the inhale to exhale ratio of breathing is um, is something that I have found validated. So the longer that you exhale, the lo the the more you stimulate your vagus nerve, okay. and the more you stimulate the parasympathetic. So the kind of inhale for four, exhale for six mm -hmm. has been found to be um, the most uh, tolerable ratio to breathe in for most people okay. which is why it's employed so regularly in studies um yeah. you know six cycles a minute um kind of thing what we what we could do to increase the effect is breathe in for three out for seven okay 
but that's not that comfortable. Uh -huh. And what it leads to is a little bit of hyperventilation. Right. Um, and therefore, you get a little bit of, um, you know, a carbon dioxide release to like into larger degree. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to other physiological changes. Yep. So you can go down the investigative route yeah. um, and it will lead you down a certain path. But what for me, I think the conclusion I've come to in the last sort of eight months is that we breathing in the lab is very interesting but actually in real life yeah. there is no doubt that it has uh, positive effects and so we can take it only so far before we say okay let's be pragmatic let's go with principles yeah. rather than trying to prove the four to six inhale <laughs> ratio does x y and z let's just say that deep slow breathing so slow the frequency take a deeper breath down into the diaphragm that that has a positive effect. Okay. Um, and that, you know, is an old wives tale. I yeah. mean, you stub your toe, you take a deep breath, it relieves the pain. Yeah. So can we be pragmatic with yeah. our research? Because that is sometimes what is lacking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Principle-based and, and pragmatism. And so you, you were saying before that you've pivoted your research mm -hmm. since, right? So you, you were involved in some studies looking at a particular type of breathing and uh, the perception of pain yeah. um, using a validated uh, model, which I found fascinating because <laughs> I didn't know how you got it through ethics. Yeah. But, uh, but um, you've since pivoted that. But would you mind talking about the studies that you did do and then mm -hmm. how you, know, you might be um, uh, adding to that body of research and, and going down a slightly different path? Yeah, I mean, so in terms of the breathing, the we're, we're doing so it's our lab that's done it so for me I started with looking at the literature review on breathing and the reason I got into that was because of a particular product I'm developing which we can mention later so for me it was always very driven to validate a product um, but the my lab itself the Wingate there um, it was a uh, PhD student um, Dr. Both who did the study and what he did was he looked at a healthy group of individuals and he instilled a what would be a pain response so it was an acid infusion into the food pipe and that stimulated the effects of what we would term as reflux so increased acid and the effect that that has on the lining of the food pipe and that instills a pain response and then he would get people to deep breathe and there were very positive results to suggest that deep breathing um, lowers your threshold um, to pain associated yeah. with reflux what i found fascinating about it is so you know introducing a painful stimuli that mimics what someone would have with dyspepsia or acid reflux and you get you controlled it with sham breathing or yes. just was it just regular breathing or like yeah so the sham breathing protocol is spontaneous breathing okay. so it's not like it's, you count the breaths because the attention that you pay on the breath is uh -huh. a confounding factor gotcha right. so you count the breaths it's spontaneous breathing and then the um so sham versus um the intervention yeah. which would be breathe for a certain number of frequency which is inhale for four exhale for six and six breaths per minute. And you found a significant difference between the perception of the painful stimuli that you introduced via the acid introduction to the, the pipe. Yes, so the lab um, found that, yeah, exactly. So they, um, both and his team found that um, there was a significant a significant difference. So I found that fascinating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, I, know. I want to see more studies that potentially replicate that finding, yeah. but you found that there might be some, some issues with that or? Yeah, so when I first, when I read this study, I arrived at the lab and Professor Aziz and I are quite keen to see if we can replicate some of this, but in the IBS cohort. So can breathing help to alleviate pain and anxiety associated with lower digestive issues? 
which is obviously slightly more complex because what we'd have to do is pop telescopes up people's farms, yeah. we would have to blow balloons up into the colon and then assess for whether the sensitivity of the feeling of that balloon improves. Um, so we, will, we, we are, were looking to design certain studies that relate to that. Um, and I think it's on the horizon. Yeah. I think it's definitely possible. I think what I've recognized is that um, the propensity to, I mean, the initial re reflux study, which I described, was done in healthy subjects. Yeah. So now what we're looking to do is try them in populations with functional gut issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is um, going to be present its own challenges uh -huh. because, as we spoke about before, it's multifactorial. Mm -hmm. So whether or not the pain improves waits to be seen, but I'm certainly fascinated to yeah, find out. Absolutely, yeah, um, and I think this is something we were talking about a bit earlier that, you know, the issue with a lot of these studies, nutrition and, and interventions like breathing in isolation, is that it kind of negates to uh, the obvious factor that it is so multimodal. Like there's so many factors that impact on someone's propensity to having IBS, for example. Uh, environmental stresses, psychological stresses, as well as what they're eating, as well as their sleep patterns and stuff. Yeah. Um, how do we even begin to control that? I mean, I, I do that, yeah. you know, using the research out there, I will make suggestions on circadian rhythm disruption, sleeping at regular times, eating uh, a certain way most of the time, if, they're, if that's a, attainable for them, as well as, you know, exercise, movement, all these different things that have a plethora of effects on multiple different systems. So that's why it's so hard to test this in a research environment. How does this translate to what you tell people in clinic? Mm -hmm. and, and what do you think is the horizon on, on lifestyle medicine intervention? So there's so many questions. Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> so that's a big yeah, one. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I think the, where we're faltering is that we are trying one thing at a time. Um, and of course, the difficulty is, is in research, we like to see cause and effect. So how would one possibly try more than one thing yeah. um, and be able to, with validity, say that um, X leads to Y and prove causation? So I appreciate why we're having that approach in research. I think that's important. But for me, what's most pragmatic is um, that, that patients are so different. Everybody is so different that one Thing to one person might be something to another. So there's what we call heterogeneity, so differences between individuals um, that need to be taken into account, and also the individual's motivation. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, don't spend enough time delving into that in order to provide what I would like to do eventually, which is a personalised medicine approach yeah. to each person. And a particular quote comes to mind that I also found really useful that I read recently, and it it really got me out of a low moment because I was going through these research thinking, I'm never gonna be able to prove that, that breathing in this particular way affects this particular thing. And then I thought, oh, well, you know, as you often feel, just scrap the whole thing. Yeah. And this quote was from, it was from the journal Gut. So it was a 2002 paper um, by a chap called Reed. And the quote came from a clinician, a physician who um, was obviously reputed to have lived uh, a couple of hundred years ago in Bath. And he is reputed to have said that it is more important to find out what kind of patient has the disease than it is to find out what kind of disease the patient has. And for me, I don't know, something just struck a chord. I was yeah. like, yes, Absolutely, yeah. yes. Like, 
And I don't blame us. I was saying earlier, we were, we were chatting over lunch about the fact that our consultations are what, like 10 minutes? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I get a 10 minute follow up and yeah. maybe a 20 minute you, new if I'm lucky, yeah. which depends on the hospital I'm at. And yeah. I don't know how long you get an A&E, yeah. but <laughs> you know, how are you gonna ask somebody about what kind of person they are? Yeah. No time for yeah. that. And I don't blame us, but I think what I try to do at least is um, address the multimodal aspects, but in a way that's bite-sized and manageable. So I might try to identify, I often say to people, okay, you've got bloating, constipation, diarrhea, you've got loads of symptoms. If you could have one wish, and I take it really esoteric and they're like, who is this woman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, if you could have one wish, which one thing would you focus on? Yeah. Because it's complex. Yeah. And they say, okay, bloating. And I'm like, right, you need to look at the low FODMAP diet, uh -huh. but you also need to do some yoga. Yeah, yeah. And just those two things. And you gauge the person in front of you and you say, okay, well, maybe you need to try this or try that. Yeah. But one or two things usually does the trick. And in life, I would prefer someone to just feel better. Absolutely. Like, okay, yeah, yeah like maybe, you know, we always say like cut out gluten mm -hmm. on its own, for example, mm -hmm. um, to see if you feel better, or then or cut out all of these things and then reintroduce. Yeah. But I would just rather someone felt better so yeah, if they're gonna absolutely. do a couple of things at the same time maybe yeah. it's not scientific yeah. but maybe they'll feel better I totally agree <laughs> because in that sort of time restricted uh, consultation that we have as general practitioners and in A&E as well you, you, you know you want to try and hone in on what is the major factor when people come in with a whole bunch of issues yeah. particularly if they've been waiting for weeks and weeks or maybe this is a chronic condition that's been going on over years what is the next best step that is yeah. always the thing what is the next best thing that I can do or we can do together that's going to lead to a slow resolution of your problems. It may be one thing that actually leads to a whole bunch of, of uh, improvements and a whole bunch of other things. But being listened to, I think, is, is fascinating. And I'm also fascinated in what your personalized medicine approach might look like in terms of a product. So <laughs> yeah. tell us about that. that yeah. I'd love to know a bit more about what you're working on. Well, yeah. So, I mean, anyone who's interested is so free to, like, kind of get in touch with me. Um, on my, I'm sure that my contact details will be available. So Absolutely. I think that's the goal. That's mm -hmm. the kind of big my kind of passion project um, in the meantime in the last sort of eight months where i've focused on the breathing side of things i've been working on a government funded project which um, looks at how do we merge art and science um, for the benefit of well-being so to provide a well-being solution so in the last couple of months i've been working with artists to develop a prototype which guides people in training in breathing techniques for the relief of pain and anxiety um, using light-based biofeedback. And I've seen also these, actually, <laughs> but they look brilliant. Yeah, they look so hopefully. Cool, yeah. yeah, I think I think it's coming along. Yeah. It really is coming along, and it's like essentially a mood lamp um, that you, you know you can place in front of you, and um, every time you breathe deeper, based on a, a sensor that you have on a cushion on your back, the light shines brighter. And as you breathe with the diaphragm, the light will shine brighter and it will teach you to breathe deeper into the diaphragm to stimulate the vagus nerve gotcha. with longer exhalation. So you're getting like sensory and visual feedback almost. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. And then at the Do same time, um, so BioBreathe. BioBreathe. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so it's breathing kind of better for your biology effectively. <laughs> I can't um, wait to see that. 
And I've incorporated sort of the gut-directed hypnotherapy okay. in it because it's kind of a stepping stone to, for me to start providing patients and people with a more holistic approach. So the hypnotherapy is really key to alter the psychological processes and then the light is kind of an artistic element. And so we'll see where it goes. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see where that goes. And hopefully, I mean, I think diet has to come into it in some way because the people, I mean, I, you probably get this as well. People say, oh, I can eat dairy one day and I feel fine. And then I eat dairy another day and I don't feel fine. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, maybe there's something more going on than just the dairy. Absolutely, yeah. Like, yeah. apart from me looking at uh, time triggers when you're eating certain things, which may come into the consultation depending on how much time we have, uh, the environment, the surroundings, what you have with that food, for example, yeah. as well as your state of mind. I mean, there's so many different factors that it's very hard to get into one consultation with. Yeah. Um, may have an impact on your response to certain ingredients in your, in your diet. And this is why I'm quite conscious of not getting people to restrict themselves as a first point of call, rather more understanding what are the other factors that can play uh, a role in, in someone's response. Yeah. Um, which is very hard to do. Very hard. Oh, my God. We need some sort of tool to figure out, you know, where people are at, yeah. what is their biggest factor that influences them the most, yeah. and therefore how can they work from that and then deal the others later, rather than going maybe straight to diet or straight to breathing when they don't have, you know, when they're not completely sure which one is the one that leads yeah. them leads them astray the most. Yeah. Um, so, and I think a lot of this will come from ancient philosophy. Yeah, so like yeah. you, when you mentioned, you kind of alluded to food combining. So mm. Ayurveda talks a lot about food yeah. combining and I'm never sure whether I could put that to the test. Yeah. I mean, is dairy with other groups of food like, you know, a difficulty or not? Like yeah. depending, I'm just fascinated. I don't I, know how I'm we're really, going to put that to I the test. I haven't actually looked into that as much as I'd like to, but yeah. you know, Ayurveda is a recognized form of medicine in India. It sits alongside conventional therapies okay. as well. And there's a lot of research that comes out of those institutions, but I just haven't had the time to look into yeah. it because Gosh, me nutritional medicine as on its own as a discipline is just so, so vast um, that yeah. that's even before we get into food combining, yeah. uh, which I think is a whole other rabbit hole. But you know, I suppose if we were to kind of condense what we've been chatting about yeah. today in, in a few words, it's lifestyle interventions in conjunction with uh, you know your well, I suppose lifestyle interventions as a whole are so multimodal and can have an impact on multiple different systems in the body, yeah. uh, and it's something we need to be a little, little bit more aware of rather than just looking at single interventions in isolation. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to begin to start having um, you know more conversations about how different things can influence us and prioritizing the ones that influence us the most not seeing and also not seeing stress as the one that we can't manipulate because yeah. you can yeah. um, it's just about thinking okay how am I going to adopt mindfulness or meditation or breathing techniques for example which how am I going to ensure that my nervous system is put into a state of rest mm -hmm. frequently mm -hmm. especially when I'm eating yeah. um, but at other times as well because sleep is not sometimes I mean you wake up and you don't feel rested mm -hmm. And I think that's a reminder that you need to put your body into rest at other times of the day. Um, so that's a, an area um, and it's just using all of those things in tandem, figuring out, looking at the person you are, figuring out what are my resilience levels, how do I manage stress, how do I face this, and then employing that for the benefit of, of you, I guess, is, is what we've talked about roughly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and loads of other things yeah. along the way. <laughs> 
Well, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that podcast with Dr. Rabia. She is absolutely incredible. I love her research and I love her ethos as well. And the fact that she's a yoga teacher, she's combining conventional medicine, she sees patients weekly. You know, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. To summarize what we talked about, the way we think impacts the way we digest and vice versa. A complex model of health requires a complex call to action. So it can't just be about breathing, it can't just be about diet, it has to be looking at the lifestyle intervention tools that we have are are disposable. So that includes a diet that's colorful, largely plant-based, lots of different fiber sources, as well as stress relieving techniques that can include breathing, but can also include walks in the park, meditation, yoga, different forms of exercise. And exercise itself could be one of those interventions that improves functional gut issues. Diversifying our diet by focusing on lifestyle interventions and taking the pressure off food intolerances as the only answer is a way of improving gut health. We talked about autonomic nervous system dysfunction that has been implicated in visceral hypersensitivity, so the sensitivity of our guts that leads to symptoms. And deep breathing may be a way of increasing parasympathetic nervous system tone, so it increases that rest and digest, and that can improve chronic visceral pain syndromes, a fancy way of saying IBS and other functional gut problems. There is a lot of evidence for stress reduction techniques and improvement of gut issues that may not have a physical cause. And this is something that we've talked about on previous episodes looking at inflammatory bowel disease and stress for type 2 diabetes. There is a need for multimodal changes the complex interplay of lifestyle changes are more technical than you think. So simple things like breath work, stress reduction techniques, dietary change impact a whole host of pathways that can improve and protect ourselves against a multitude of diseases, one of which is functional gut problems. I highly recommend you check out Dr. Rabia's uh, website. It's on the doctorskitchen.com. Buy Breathers, the project that she's working on. Please, please do go and support it. You can find all of this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com. Subscribe to the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes, content, and much more to help you live the healthiest, happiest life. Give us a five-star rating if you like this pod. It really does help spread the love and the message. Tweet us at doctors underscore kitchen. Check out the Instagram, YouTube. And of course, don't forget to order a copy of the latest book, Eat to Beat Illness. The whole bunch of research posted on this podcast is at thedoctorskitchen.com as well. Have a fantastic day and we will see you on the podcast next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.